0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our
1: our guest today is Mauro Guillen, director of the Lauder Institute, and we are going to talk to him about how companies can leverage global trends to expand their business. Uh, Mauro, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, let's imagine that we have here with us a group of executives from multinational corporations. What are some of the most important global trends that they should be paying attention to because of the potential impact that they can have on their business?
0: Well, I think there are several of these trends. And of course, all of these trends can be seen as. Uh, threats uh, on some level, but I think they actually represent major opportunities. Uh, We're seeing, for example, major trends in terms of population shifts around the world. The centers of gravity of the global economy are shifting away from Europe and the United States and Japan and towards the emerging economies. That's where the markets of the future will be, that's where the middle class of the future will be. And uh, hence, uh, consumer markets are going to be gravitating towards those parts of the world. We also see trends in terms of geopolitics, where the risks are, where the natural resources are in the world, and so on and so forth. And finally. I think we are seeing very important financial trends. Uh, We're seeing that uh, certain countries in the world are accumulating more and more reserves. They're accumulating more and more firepower for uh, the future. And uh, therefore, that's going to uh, bring about, I think, uh, realignments in currencies around the world. And uh, as a result of those shifts, companies will need to change the structure of their operations.
1: Right. So these are a great group of topics that you've laid out. Uh, why don't we start with the first one you mentioned, which is the uh, demographics? So I, I know that in some other contexts you referred to the fact that this is probably the first time in the uh, in in in, in, rec- in history that you have more grandparents than grandchildren. Uh, what are the consequences of the aging population, and how does this affect, say, uh, a banks or other companies? products and services. Well,
0: you're exactly right. Population aging is a very important phenomenon that has been going on for the last 20 years, but I think at this time and moving forward into the next five or 10 years, it's going to essentially reach critical levels. For banks, for example, what this means is that they're going to find it harder to attract deposits. And remember that deposits are the easiest way and the cheapest way for banks to get funding. Uh, So banks are going to have to look for alternative sources of funding, precisely at a time, by the way, when regulators are asking them to maintain higher capital ratios. Um, Also, uh, the kinds of products that banks sell to customers are going to have to change as a result of uh, um, older populations around the world. They will need other kinds of investment products. They will need other kinds of uh, savings products, uh, and so on and so forth. But companies in general in any industry will have to watch this trend towards population aging very carefully and once again i think there are some threats some companies will see uh, business lines shrink their markets disappear but at the same time these demographic trends also create new opportunities that can be measured in my view in the hundreds of billions of dollars.
1: So what's an example of a new opportunity that has been created either for a bank or some other company uh, because of this aging population?
0: Well, I think for banks, new types of financial products such as reverse mortgages or also investment products with a downside protection uh, are now so much more popular uh, because we have more customers of banks that happen to be in their 60s or their 70s or their 80s. And uh, for companies, uh, I think uh, any type of product that uh, has to do or service that has to do with the so-called leisure industries. Mm -hmm. So in other words, people in their 60s or 70s or 80s, many of them retire. They have more time uh, and uh, they would like to use that time productively. Uh, So as a result of that, I think there's huge opportunities for launching new products and services uh, that essentially keep people busy in retirement.
1: So, so for example, would you say that industries like travel and tourism, for example, may may see an increase because of what you just said?
0: Absolutely. And in particular, I think certain segments within the tourism industry are going to uh, grow, for example, cultural tourism. Uh, So given that uh, today uh, grandparents in the world are actually much better educated than, let's say, 20 or 40 or 60 years ago, I think the tourism industry and the leisure industry needs to move away from just, uh, you know, beach and sun. Uh, and towards cultural tourism, for example. For example.
1: So, what about industries like, say, healthcare or real estate? How can they come up with uh, products and services aimed at an older demographic?
0: Well, healthcare obviously will go through a uh, you know very rapid growth in many parts of the world, especially in emerging economies. Let's not forget that population aging is not only taking place in Europe and Japan and the United States, but it's also. Uh, a very important trend in China. It's also a very important trend in Russia, and so on and so forth. Um, so, in other words, uh, one should expect uh, major investments in healthcare, in medical equipment, in healthcare personnel, and so on and so forth, in some of the emerging economies.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that uh, sometimes concerns me is uh, if, if any, everybody in the world sees this trend that there's a. Uh, aging population is aging and they all rush to create reverse mortgages and they all rush to create products and services for the elderly, uh, isn't there likely to be a considerable oversupply and actually people will be worse off because of that?
0: Well, eventually uh, there will be uh, a lot of companies and a lot of banks uh, interested in um, you know, providing goods and services for uh, that segment of the population. But right now, I would say that uh, way more than half of the current needs are still uh, going unsatisfied in the marketplace. This is true in the United States, this is true I think in many countries around the world. At the same time, let's keep in mind that the number, just the sheer number of people in their 60s or their 70s or their 80s is gonna grow very, very quickly. Uh, So my sense right now is that supply meaning the number of companies that are offering these goods and services, is lagging seriously behind the demand. And it will con- that will continue to be the case, I think, for the next uh, five or ten years.
1: Right. I'd like to sort of switch now, if you don't mind, to another of the big global trends that you mentioned, which is the financial one. Uh, so until now, we have had the U.S. dollar almost serve as a reserve currency for the world, really, because it's accepted everywhere. Uh, but Slowly, the Chinese RMB tends, seems to becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, What what do you think is likely to happen there? And how should companies factor that into their growth plans?
0: Well, I think we are definitely going through a transition phase in terms of the global financial architecture. As you just pointed out, the dollar has played a dominant role in the uh, global system for the last uh, 60 years or so. Uh, But then, uh, that period, uh, referring of course to the post-World War II period, that was a time when the U.S. economy was the biggest by a wide margin, and when the U.S. was the biggest trading nation in the world. Uh, Right now, China is already the biggest trading nation, and the Chinese economy may, within five years or at most ten years become the largest economy in the world. So the world, the global economy, needs the Chinese currency to play a role. And we're starting to see the beginnings of that, especially in East Asia. So countries such as Thailand or Indonesia uh, or the Philippines are starting to think about how to uh, increasingly link their economies to China, not only uh, in terms of uh, trade flows, but also in terms of financial flows and uh, currencies. Uh, And so this is going to change the landscape uh, for all companies, even if they don't operate in China, Uh, because uh, companies will need to um, do hedging, for example, uh, in a different way. They will need to revisit uh, their cash flows around the world. So I think the Treasury functions at major multinational firms in the world are going to uh, have to do a lot of homework uh, in order to adapt to the new realities uh, in the uh, global financial architecture.
1: What are the implications for the world economy, for the RMB to become a dominant currency?
0: Well, uh, first of all, I don't think it's going to become a a dominant currency in the sense that it's going to displace the dollar. I think uh, we are moving into a kind of world in which the renminbi at some point will play a role alongside with the dollar and the euro and uh, perhaps a couple of other currencies. Uh, I think the Indian rupee at some point in the next 20 or 30 years will also play a role if uh, growth in India continues. Uh, But the important thing to keep in mind is that multinational firms, uh, because of the complexity of their operations, uh, they move money around the world, right, because they generate revenue in one part of the world, they get funds from another part of the world, they keep their money in certain parts of the world because maybe taxes are lower and so on and so forth. What I'm saying is that what I'm suggesting is that in the next uh, five to ten years, uh, most of these companies will need to revisit the assumptions that they've been working with when it comes to making decisions as to those money flows inside of the firm. And if they don't, I think that's going to have a big impact on their profitability and on the uh, amount of money at the end of the year that they'll be able to offer their shareholders in return for the funds that uh, uh, they have uh, given the company to operate.
1: So, so I mean, that, that's clearly, you know, both an opportunity and a risk. Uh, what are some of the other major risks, especially on the geopolitical front, uh, that you see, and how how should companies either hedge their risks, uh, or are there opportunities in those risks?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest uh, uh, risk right now, uh, and uh, looking down the road for the next five years or so, has to do with a combination of factors. Uh, what we see is that uh, there are certain parts of the world where we see very young populations, so the population is growing rapidly. Uh, And uh, at the same time, we see that uh, corruption uh, is a problem, government corruption. And we also see uh, that there's political instability. And on top of all of that, these are countries that happen to have a lot of natural resources, energy, minerals, and so on and so forth. So I'm referring to some parts of Latin America, but mostly to Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and some parts of South Asia. So this so-called long arc of instability in the world that stretches from Latin America all the way to Southeast Asia and then reaches a climax in sub-Saharan Africa, I think is a major source of volatility and of risk to the entire global economy. Uh, I think uh, one cannot understand, for example, nowadays the fluctuations in commodity prices or in energy prices, the extreme volatility without taking into account this combination of factors. Once again, young populations, rapidly growing populations, uh, political instability, corruption, all of that coupled with uh, natural resources, uh, energy and minerals.
1: So how do we hedge those risks? What do we do? Well, companies
0: uh, on an individual basis uh, certainly need to be very careful as to where they invest, but more importantly, how they invest. I think the issue is not, oh, Are there a number of countries out there that I need to avoid? No, I don't think that's the right way of thinking about the problem. The right way of thinking about the problem is, if I want to be a multinational firm, a truly global company, I need to operate in a variety of markets. So, based on that assumption, what is the best way of operating? And I would, uh, in particular, recommend that companies think about staging their investments, that companies keep their options open, uh, and if uh, unpredictable events happen, then they can quickly rearrange their operations in such a way that, uh, you know, a crisis in a particular part of the world doesn't affect uh, their operations and their profitability on a worldwide basis.
1: You know, one more risk that we hear about a lot these days is cyber terrorism. Part of the challenge seems to be that very often Uh, You know, the the threat may come either from some governments or it may come from, you know, amorphous groups of hackers that don't have a state, the stateless uh, units. Uh, What do you think is likely to happen uh, as far as uh, that is concerned? Yes, cyber
0: risks or risks related to uh, our increasing reliance on information systems and uh, Um, telecommunications and uh, the transfer of information uh, all over the world, uh, I think, uh, are clearly going to be on the increase. Uh, We have, uh, I think, uh, obtained many advantages from the information and telecommunications revolution. Uh, We have cut costs, we have uh, uh... enable companies uh... to essentially pursue opportunities in many different kinds of markets to relate to their customers in different markets uh, to look for the lowest cost uh platforms uh, on which to uh, manufacture their products, and so on and so forth. Uh, So there's many benefits to information and telecommunications technologies, both internal to the firm and to society as a whole. But of course, there's also risks. And increasingly over the last, I would say, three to five years, what we've seen is an increase in precisely those kinds of risks uh, that come in some cases from governments, but most likely. Uh, from individuals who uh, essentially want to make a dent and maybe spend a few uh, years in jail and then uh, leave and become consultants, right, uh, to <laughs> major multinational firms or governments, which is what some of them do, uh, you know, which is a kind of a replay of "Catch Me If You Can," uh, you know, the uh, the, uh, the the movie. So the 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 issue here is essentially what should individual companies do? Well, uh, it is very clear to me what they should do uh, is ensure that nothing that they view as a strategic asset or resource can be affected by this kind of cyber attack. So not all resources, not all assets inside of the corporation are equally vital. Uh, The company needs to make sure that it understands what are the five or six or seven things that they don't want anybody to lay their hands on, and they have to protect those things uh, very carefully.
1: Let me ask you one last question. You know fifteen years ago, if you were were to look at the internet, it would have been very, very difficult for anyone to predict that social media will become such a powerful force. I mean, or that a company like Twitter may come into existence and its platform will have the power even to topple governments. Looking at the next 15 years, if I were to ask you to look into your crystal ball and see what do you see, what would your answer be?
0: Well, I think uh, there are at least two very exciting and very promising uh, areas in which uh, we're going to see a lot of action. One is uh, the intersection of information technologies and robotics. Uh, This is going to transform manufacturing. It is going to transform the way in which we consume goods and services. Uh, It is going to transform education. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years from now I am redundant as a professor and that we can have a robot in the classroom uh, actually doing probably a much better job. Uh, This is going to transform the automobile industry as we know. Uh, It's already transforming uh, surgical procedures at hospitals. Uh, so this uh, combination of uh, informatics and uh, robotics, uh, that's one area in which I think uh, there's going to be uh, uh, you know, a lot of potential and of course we see a lot of activity, uh, both in terms of uh, startups and also established corporations that are making big investments. I think the other area is more broadly in the use of uh, artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, language-based, you know, artificial language-based, you know, protocols and so on and so forth. And if if I may add a a third area, uh, I truly believe that uh, uh, three-dimensional printing, 3D printing, it's also going to be, uh, you know, a high-growth industry. Uh, Right now, most of the visionary applications that one reads about uh, strike one as being you know, kind of crazy uh, or outlandish. Uh, but we're only in the beginnings of, I think, a major trend in terms of decentralizing manufacturing, especially of uh, very specific parts and components. So 3D printing, I think, has the potential of revolutionizing quite a few things, and also, by the way, enabling poor and disadvantaged people and countries and communities uh, to perhaps play a more important role in the global economy.
1: Great. So, uh, before I thank you, Mauro, I just want to have a small reaction to what you said about robots respl- replacing professors. Uh, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles recently. And that story was broken in a matter of three seconds by a robot journalist. So for all you know, I may be redundant as well. <laughs> I think journalists
0: uh, should be uh, watching those trains very carefully as well.
1: Mauro, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton.
0: Thank you for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.